in Eastern Shitsville on Friday the 14th of October. Thank you for joining me on an otherwise perfectly serviceable Friday afternoon. Now, dude, I know you're sitting there at the office and I know the clock is ticking and we're looking forward to go home o'clock. I promise you, if you just sit behind your laptop and tune in for the next hour, the boss won't. No, just try and look productive, you know, hit a few keys, take part in the chat, it'll all look just fine. And then at the end of this live stream, take the rest of the week off, won't you? Boss won't mind. If he has a bit of a spit, refer him to me. I'll sort things out. That's how this goes. Now, I wanted to talk to you about Nissan, because Nissan has just announced the pricing for its most pointless, ridiculous hybrid yet. This thing is called the Nissan X-Trail E-Power with E-4 Orse, O-R-C-E. Nissan X-Trail E-Power with E for Orse. Doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, does it? In fact, I'd suggest the name is a crime against the language. I wonder how many meetings they had to have to get that sorted. Answer, not enough. The architecture, though, which is what I really want to focus on, is a crime against physics and a frontal assault on the concept of thermodynamic efficiency. So, aside from being too complex, too expensive, too heavy, and insufficiently fuel-efficient, and a Nissan, sounds like a perfectly serviceable idea to me. Dude, approved. Welcome, therefore, to the first edition of Livestream Besprotwa or as I like to call it, bullshit press release of the week. My goal, of course, is Vision Zero. Vision Zero Christmas card. And I think this will be a really easy way to achieve that. You know, one step at a time, though. I've got a long-term target here. There's weeks to go. I'm sure this will be effective, however. Now, it pains me to point out that much of this is going to be satire. It's also my honest personal opinion. I'm going to try and stick inside the box of YouTube's community guidelines, and I welcome your input as well. We're going to thrash out this new hybrid that Nissan has announced, and I'm going to give you my commentary on that. Then I'll move over to your comments. I'm going to prioritise the ones that are actually about this vehicle. I'd love to know what you think in the chat. I've organised the live chat so that it will replay if you watch this live stream subsequently. So you'll be able to see what the live participants to the whole stream were, uh, were saying at the time, if that is your want. And with that, let us dissect the press release. There's bullet points. There's always bullet points for the short attention span of journalists. The bullet points say Nissan ePower with four ORS available in X-Trail TI and TIL trim levels. That would be the two top tier model of the Chitois, right? So TI and TIL are the top spec X-Trail, right? E4 Orse, right? Of course, Isaac Newton. I'm seeing him spinning in his grave on the philosophical application of this. I'm also seeing William Shakespeare just spinning. He's at 5,000 RPM, you know. Because 4 Orse, really? Is that the best you could do? Well done. E4 Orse men of the physics and linguistic friggin' apocalypse, you know. They go on, they say, unlike conventional hybrid systems, ePower delivers an EV-like drive experience all of the time without needing to plug in. So, plugging in is bad, is it? We'll get to that. 
I'd suggest that the cost of all of this phenomenal complexity is this is internal combustion slutting itself out as electric, right? It's like bullshitting its way to electric stardom or to green virtue or any of that stuff. And you still get to pay the friggin' road user tax in Victoria, as I understand it. So, <laughs> pro tip, plugging in is an advantage, dude. It really is because the electrons are cheaper than the liquid fuel, typically, especially if you've got rooftop solar and you're at home during the day and you plug in during the day. But even if you don't, they're still cheaper. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the concept of e-power, it works like this. You've got an internal combustion engine running all the time whenever the wheels are turning and burning the engine is kind of turning and burning it drives a generator just like a gen set when you go camping off to dingo piss creek only somewhat more sophisticated than that the generator pumps up a tiny little battery in this case 1.8 kilowatt hours which is anorexic in the con in the context of evs and even plug-in hybrids it's anorexic dude so then you've got the battery driving an inverter that produces alternating current to drive the traction motors. There's one on the front axle and one on the rear axle. Okay, So this is a very complex system with a lot of philosophically moving parts. And there are definite second law of thermodynamics disadvantages to doing it that way. We'll get to that. There's a real headline, though, which is brilliant, and that is the engine. The three-cylinder, one-and-a-half-litre engine here has variable compression ratio. As I understand it, it's the first production example of a properly variable compression ratio engine, which is really brilliant. It, it just is. So, small round of applause, Nissan engineers, for getting that across the line, owing to the technical complexity of achieving that. And they do it with essentially a variable length conrod. There's a mechanism, it's not just a variable length conrod, but it simulates a variable length conrod, right? And the advantage of variable compression ratio is that at low loads, you can have a really high compression ratio that yields high thermodynamic efficiency for the engine, for the internal combustion part. And then when you pull out to overtake a truck, the compression ratio drops, right, at high loads so that you don't melt the pistons and it's not dogs and cats living together. See, in a conventional engine with a fixed conrod, you've kind of got a plan in engineering terms for the worst case scenario, which is that 45 degree day where the dude who owns the car pulls out up a steep hill to round up a truck and you've got low air density and high ambient temperatures and a high demand, so high power outputs. And all of these things combined to the extent ultimately where the worst case scenario is, you melt through the piston because the fuel can't tolerate the compression and it starts to burn in an uncontrolled way. Temperatures go through the roof, it's a disaster. But if you could vary the compression ratio, you could have high compression ratio sometimes and then drop the compression ratio when an assignment like I just described is called for and that would lead overall to a broader sort of span of operational capability. And there are some hacks for compression ratio like they're virtual hacks though. There's a thing called the Atkinson cycle where they change the valve timing, right? So the inlet stroke and the uh, compression stroke are kind of different, 
because of the valve timing. And that's a, a virtual sort of hack for uh, compression ratio, you know. So anyway, Atkinson is imperfect because it compromises power production, whereas variable compression ratio does not do that. I hope I haven't mangled the explanation of that too much because I know that's a bit of a brain bender. But anyway, if they just gone out and said, look at our engine, how fucking clever are we? I'd be going, yeah, you are. That is impressive. Getting that across the line into production is very difficult. Not sure I'd want to be a lab rat for the first couple of years worth of, you know, in-service testing effectively by owning the vehicle, because who knows what can go wrong with something this complex until there are millions upon millions of in-service real-world kilometres under the belt. But it's going to be interesting to see about the engine at least. I've got a great deal of respect for that, and I'm not being the slightest bit tongue-in-cheek about that. Now, bullet point number three, whatever we're up to here, Stream's not falling over, as I understand it. It appears... Just, just let me check one other thing. It appears we do have audio, because I know you don't want to Marcel Marceau your way through this. I know I don't, that's for sure. Anyway, they say, the TIE power with E for ORS is priced at 54190 plus on-road costs, while the X-Trail TILE dash power with E dash for ORS is priced at 57190 MSRP. Both models represent a $4,200 premium over the equivalent internal combustion-powered variants. So, two observations on that. The first one is definitely not a cheap thing, is it? But I guess you could say small round of applause for shrinking the gap between combustion and hybridization. $4,200 is not that big of a hurdle for a would-be buyer to jump over. I'm just not so sure this technology is appropriate. And we'll get to that in just a second. They go on and they say the E-4OCE twin motor all-wheel drive system delivers reassuring traction and confident acceleration in all conditions thanks to Nissan's most advanced all-wheel control technology and efficient fuel use of just 6.1 litres per 100 combined. That's the official figure, right? So I'd suggest 6.1 is roughly the same fuel economy as a diesel frigging Hyundai Tucson, which also tows more and costs $10,000 less, is much less complex, proven in service, not a Nissan, and also lighter. So there's all of those things to consider. Incidentally, the fuel consumption for that vehicle is 6.3. The fuel consumption for the one we're discussing right now, the Nissan with the stupid name, is 6.1. And the difference, therefore, 6.3 on 6.1 is about, what is it, 3%, 4%, something like that. Not enough to make an appreciable difference, but a shit ton of added complexity, and it's going to cost you 10 grand more. And let's not forget... Every kilo of fuel you burn is equivalent to uh, whatever CO2, right? So if you're burning 6.1 or 6.3 for 100 kilometres, you are emitting roughly the same amount of CO2. So I know diesel's a dirty word, but it's still a pretty simple, cost-effective way to reduce CO2 output, just saying. Okay, the uh, Tucson engine also, incidentally, is probably more than 10 years old, so I don't think we could pat ourselves on the back too hard for our outstanding technical achievement here when we're talking about 
new technology delivering essentially the same level of fuel economy as an equivalent vehicle with a 10-year-old powertrain, which incidentally also has quite an inefficient but refined uh, epicyclic automa automatic transmission with a conventional torque converter. So there's that to consider as well. Now, Nissan goes on in the bullet points for the short attention span journalist and says deliveries of the Nissan X-Trail ePower with E-4Ors will commence in early 2023. And I'd suggest that this vehicle is something of a scientific literacy and environmental worthwhileness, if that's a word, IQ test. And if you buy one, you just might be failing both of those tests. I'm going to run through the logic of exactly why here, because I'm extremely concerned that scientific literacy in Australia is very poor. And one of the consequences of that is if you didn't pay too much attention to things like thermodynamics, which is a pretty boring topic, but kind of important because that's how the universe rolls, you know, if you didn't pay enough attention to that to have a basic understanding, you might just swallow all kinds of marketing, particularly green marketing bullshit endlessly, and convince yourself that you're doing the right thing, whatever the right thing is in your mind, okay? The release proper now, okay? We've covered the bullet points. Melbourne, Australia, October the 13th, 2022, yesterday, relative to the date of this live stream, Nissan's most technologically advanced SUV to arrive in Australia will be here soon with the Nissan X-Trail ePower with E-4Ors, delivering an EV-like drive experience without ever needing to plug in. What is with this without ever needing to plug in, Bizzo, right? Like, how hard is it to plug in? It's easy. I... I drove an electric car for a year. It's easier to plug in than it is to stop at the friggin' servo for liquid fuel. And nobody, nobody ever asks you to adjudicate on the unbeatable two-for-one KitKat meal deal, which I never missed. Not once. I liked driving that EV. I really did. And I didn't miss the fuel station aspect of vehicle ownership. I could divorce myself from that with no regret and I've had five divorces dude I know all about regret you know the e-power they say with e-4ors all-wheel drive models which is all of those ones because that's what e-4ors actually means it means an electric motor at the front end and the blunt end right will join the all-new x-trail family it's a model lineup in Australia in early 2023 so that's what about uh, 7, 12, 84, it's about 95 sleeps or something, isn't it? Am I wrong? I'm sure one of you can let me know in the chat. <sighs> Completing one of the most comprehensive SUV lineups in the country. Comprehensive, okay? No diesel, no manual, no entry-level small engine in the range. CVT only. No wireless Android Auto. There's no seven-seat option in the E-4-Ors hybrid ones either. And on the balance of probability, I'm just inferring this, but it's probably on the money, uh, there's not going to be a spare tyre for the fake hybrids either. So there's that. I don't know if that makes it comprehensive. It's well-equipped, though, I'd have to say, in the top spec. They say, uh, designed to act as flagship models in the X-Trail range. It's not a range. It's not a family anymore. It's a range. The E-Power with E-4-Ors... 
powertrain is available on the generously equipped X-Trail TI and TIL trim levels. The electrified X-Trail range, which is really powered by a combustion engine, but hey, let's not shoot the messenger on the details, right? Begins with the TIE power with E-Force. That must be such a pain in the ass to keep talking about it like that at press conferences and writing it in press releases. Anyway, the base model Chitois of E-Force is... 54 and a bit, 190, plus on-road costs, followed by the top-of-the-range X-Trail TILE-Power with E-4-Horse for 57, 190, plus on-road costs. Right? Both models represent a $4,200 premium, they say, over the equivalent internal combustion engine-powered variants. Both are offered in five-seat configurations, which means that sticking the battery in the back means no seat in row three and well, no row three and it also therefore most probably means no spare tire but i'm happy to be corrected on that that's just speculation on my part but you know i'd be surprised if there was one the x-trail i'm not going to stop saying that because it's really hard to keep saying that tongue twisting abomination of a name i'm just going to call it the hybrid right the x-trail hybrid features this is the TI, so the lower of the two hybrid spec levels. Features genuine leather accented seating. Genuine leather accented means leather accented features and upholstery may contain synthetic material, so probably not leather. 19-inch alloy wheels, panoramic sunroof, LED turn signals, a smart review mirror, tri-zone climate control, adaptive driving beam, auto wipers, and power-operated rear tailgate, because lifting that mother lover manually so difficult. The technology offering is also significant with a 12.3-inch navigation-equipped touchscreen, a 10.8-inch head-up display, wireless phone charging, and wireless Apple CarPlay, but plug-in Android Auto, I checked, and a 12.3-inch TFT digital driver display. So, full-on screens, dude. Fully sick in the screen department and quite well-equipped. The flagship model, if you step up and spend even bigger, big buckaroonies, the TIL uh, hybrid, furthers the luxury story featuring a heated steering wheel. That's going to come in handy in Darwin, isn't it? A Bose 10-speaker sound system for pumping out the fat beats, the Celine Dion. Looking at you, quintessential X-Trail buyer. Full Napa leather seating with no little disclaimer, so actual dead cow. With memory seat function, rear sunshades, hands-free rear tailgate, heated rear outboard seats, remote engine start, and more. What is the more, I wonder? It's the ultimate prick tease, isn't it? And more. Adam Patterson, who's the cheese of Nissan Australia, said, with the X-Trail TI and TIL hybrid models, Luxury and efficiency arrive hand in hand, combining the best design, safety, comfort and convenience features with Nissan's advanced electrification technology, which isn't as efficient as an internal combustion powertrain, just saying. But anyway, he didn't say that, I did. To deliver an EV-like drive experience, but internal combustion EV-like drive experience. And incredible efficiency almost as good as a diesel Tucson. It's the kind of technology you need to experience to believe. I don't. 
And we can't wait for Australian families to climb behind the wheel. I'm liking that statement, Adam. Just one question, dude. How does a family climb behind a wheel? I think that's illegal in most jurisdictions. Anyhow. The press release continues and says, Unlike conventional hybrid systems, Nissan's innovative e-power technology delivers a constant EV-like drive experience thanks to the driven wheels being powered only by the electric motors. So response is always instant, linear and smooth. Yeah, but it is a tremendously inefficient setup thanks to the second law of thermodynamics, which if you never paid attention at school, dude, it's like this, right? The second law of thermodynamics says that entropy increases if your system's in a box that work and energy can't enter or leave via, right? Through whatever. What it basically means is that if you're in the box and everything's in the, in the box, the universe is in the friggin' box, right? It, this, the second law is a very inelegant piece of design because it leads to this phenomenon called the heat death of the universe. Just ask your friendly neighbourhood astrophysicist if I'm right on that. He'll confirm but what it means in industry and engineering is that every time you do a process, you lose available energy because that's the second law in operation, right? You always lose available energy because processes are not reversible. Now, processes are fundamentally irreversible and to reverse them, you need to inject energy through the wall of the box, okay? It means every time you do a process, you lose available energy. And that means if you've got fuel going through an internal combustion engine and then being converted into electricity in a generator and then being pumped into a tiny little battery and then being pumped out of the battery and into an inverter to change it from DC to AC and then being pumped into an electric motor and then being pumped out of the electric motor into a drive shaft for tractive effort, you've got six processes and every time you do that process, each of those processes, you lose available energy. So one of the real tricks with engineering is to minimise the number of processes between A and B. You know, A is what you've got and B is what you want to get. And this is a fail for that reason. This is a real fail of process complexity because there is a penalty. Now, if you're still not getting the second law, the easiest way I can explain it to you is by analogy. And the analogy is that we're all in a casino and instead of betting money, we're betting available energy. And there's only a couple of rules, right? There's the rule that you have to play and there's the rule that you have to lose with every hand. So every time you roll the dice or pull the handle on the slot machine, whatever, right, you lose available energy. And ultimately, it turns everything into a clock, right? Like, your face is a clock. Have a look at what you looked like when you were 18 and have a look what you look like now, dude. That's the second law of thermodynamics. You look in the mirror, it's always later. Everything's a clock, okay? I, I can't be more succinct than that about the second law, but it's everywhere. It operates everywhere. It's why it's so easy to pull an engine apart or anything else, and why it's so fundamentally freaking hard to put it back together, because 
you're making it more random on the way apart and you're making it less random when you put it back together. So one of these activities is swimming against the flow of the glue that binds events in the universe together, the second law, and I'll leave it to you to figure out which one of those activities it is. But if you've ever put anything back together that was so easy to pull apart and so friggin' hard to put back together... That's because you're going against the grain of the second law, dude. And you're not alone. We all experience it, you know? Anyway, the press release goes on and says the X-Trails e-power with system, hybrid system, is comprised of a high-output 1.8 kilowatt-hour battery. 1.8 kilowatt-hour battery. Now, just bear with me a second. I've got to go into the wings of the fat cave, and if I don't get back, like... Have a nice life, dude. It's always a risk, isn't it? This is a 5 amp hour Milwaukee lithium ion power tool battery. The M18 is their marketing bullshit for 18 volts. 5 amp hours times 18 volts is 90 watt hours. So this battery in the e-power is like 20 of them, right? It's a very small battery is what I'm saying. And it's the thing that is driving a car that weighs nearly two tonnes. Now, you've used these, right? You've plonked them up the arse of various power tools and cut wood and drilled holes and driven in screws and shit like that, and you know the amount of work that these can do. So if you've got 20 of them together... Just have a think about how hard they might be able to accelerate a two-ton block of car-ish. It's like 1.9 or 1.7, I can't remember. Anyway, it's in the specs. Incidentally, on the specs and the press release, I'll have a download link in the description for you, and you can get into that and read the whole thing without my interpretation, and also look at the specs. If you really want to know what the weight is, click the link, download the dogs. So, anyway... How far do you reckon 20 of these would be able to drive a car that weighs almost two tonnes? And the answer is not very far. So this battery is being flogged, is what I'm saying. You put 20 of these in a box, there's your battery. You're flogging it. You're discharging it really hard, and you've got to pump it back up really hard, okay? And that basically is what batteries hate. So I hope this is a pretty special friggin' battery in the Nissan, because and they've got a bad track record for battery durability. I'm looking at you, Generation 1 Nissan Leaf. So, anyway, there's this battery integrated with variable compression ratio petrol engine, which is very clever, small round of applause, power generator, inverter, twin electric motors, 150 kilowatts on the front axle, and 100 kilowatt motor on the rear axle, with a combined system output of 157 kilowatts. So here's what I find interesting there, right? If you look at the powertrain drive system and then the motor system, like you've got what's powering the motors and then you've got the capacity of the motors, you've got 250 kilowatts of drive capacity in the motors, but upstream of that, you've only got 157 kilowatts of ability to push power through those motors, which does seem like something of a uh, fail. Speaking of fails, it's kind of interesting to not remember as a broadcast professional. It's kind of interesting to, rem to fail to remember to go into silent mode on your phone when you walk into the studio, isn't it? Anywho, 
it may it, it, to me it just seems like there's a lot of motor capacity there that is unable to be driven flat out by the system and that means there's a weight penalty and also presumably a price penalty to having it there and there would want to be therefore a good engineering justification for all of that extra capacity and i can only assume they're trying to keep the weight down of the rest of the system and also at the same time be able to shunt a significant amount of power rearwards when they need to because obviously the drive system is front prioritized and that means that the computer despite how clever they make it sound is really just going to be figuring out how much drive to apportion to the rear in various circumstances so there's that but you're paying for 250 kilowatts worth of motors and you're only getting the ability to deliver 157 kilowatts from the maximum and i'd further suggest that the ability to deliver that power is very limited in the time domain because the internal combustion engine has nothing like that amount of power available just a fraction of that off the top of my head i think it's 116 kilowatts coming out of that very clever engine maximum it's uh, 1.5 liter three cylinder from memory variable uh, geometry turbocharger and variable compression ratio and you've only got a tiny battery so if you've only got 116 kilowatts coming out of the engine and it's got to go through these processes to get to the drive motors then it's going to be less a lot less than 100 kilowatts to the drive motors and the battery is only going to be able to make up the difference for a very short window of time because its capacity is only 1.8 kilowatt hours. I hope that makes sense. They go on and they say this unique powertrain means that power to the wheels comes only from the electric motors which results in instant linear response to the accelerator and impressive fuel efficiency of just 6.1 litres per hundred. That's based on the official ADR test which is a few percent better than a diesel Tucson, as discussed earlier. Okay, and that's ADR8102. Okay, so it's going to be somewhat worse than that in the real world, obviously, although it will regeneratively break, so that's kind of nice if you're in traffic. And of course, the ADR regulations are crap because they don't adequately represent reality, and that sets consumers up to expect better than they actually get from every friggin' car they buy. They go on and they say, the power for the electric motors and battery is generated by a highly advanced variable compression turbocharged petrol engine which runs quietly in the background to feed the battery which then supplies power to the electric motors via an inverter. Okay, so it's 1.5 litres and essentially as I, as I said it replaces the Conrod with this special computer controlled link that changes, it basically variables, it basically varies, sorry, the location of top dead centre and bottom dead center in real time based on the driving conditions and accelerative demand, okay? And that is very clever. I'd have to say it's extremely clever to do that. Beats the Atkinson cycle hands down, which was the next best thing previously. The four-horse E twin motor all-wheel drive system delivers reassuring traction and confident acceleration in all conditions thanks to Nissan's most advanced all-wheel control technology the system doesn't just unlock capability but also delivers better grip traction and turning ability enhancing ride and handling okay happy with that deliveries of the Nissan X-Trail e-power with will commence in early 2023 so there you go 
I don't know what you think about all of that. Are you gagging for a vehicle such as this? Is this the solution to the climate problem that humanity has been searching for, striving to achieve all these years? Or is it just a bit of once over lightly fluff? Because I think the engine's very clever, but the rest of it is just a bad idea that's been productionized and executed in so far as efficiency goes, as far as I can tell. I'd be very interested to hear what you think about all of this, and we might just throw it over to you and let you generate a little bit of direction for the dialogue henceforth in the live stream, which will go on for a few more minutes if you like, because I've just given you my opinion, I'd rather hear from you and know what your opinion is. So why don't we start with Adam Tipping now. He says, wow, they couldn't get the 2.5 litre uh, right without reliability issues. How are they going to get this new technology right? I'm scared for buyers interested or put their deposit down. Yeah, I'm a bit like that too. I, I don't see why you should be a lab rat in an experiment ever, you know, when it comes to new cars. And I, I really think, given the complexity and the newness of the engine technology, in particular Nissan's uh, track record with battery reliability, and the way they dealt with the failures of the Generation 1 Leaf, which was pretty reprehensible in my view. I think it's best to sit this one out, even if you are dead keen, for the first several months at least, just to see what in-service experience tends to be like. So we'll go on now and have a look at what some other people are saying. Dudes like you in the comments, Adam Pistachia says, how does a 106 kilowatt engine, it's 116 dude, provide enough power for the 250 kilowatts of electric motors? Well, it doesn't, okay? What happens is the 116 kilowatt engine provides electrical power once it's been converted, and the battery makes up the rest for a total system output of 157 kilowatts. But that 157 is going to be brief because the battery can't keep pumping forever and the engine is playing a losing game because it cannot supply 157. So the, the provision of 157 kilowatts, by definition, has to be a very brief window of time before you get back to something less than 100 kilowatts because when the battery is exhausted and the little three-cylinder is pumping its guts out, it's going to be 116 kilowatts minus the conversion efficiencies of all of the steps of the process. And that's something... Nissan will never tell you in any of the marketing fluff. They will not lie to you, I presume, in their description of the product, but they won't point that out, okay? And I don't see how it can be any other way because we can't magic up 157 kilowatts. See, the difference between a petrol engine at peak power is that you can get a petrol engine and put it on an engine dyno and put a dirty big tank of fuel out the back and connect it up and set it up to run at peak power for the whole friggin' weekend, if you like. And it will just run, if it's well designed, at peak power for the whole weekend. And you'll come back and go, oh, yeah. right, until the fuel runs out, sort of thing. In fact, when car companies do engine proving in R&D, they have their programs, and they've never given me the granular detail of those programs, but I have spoken to engineers who do that sort of thing for a living. And they say that 
there's is a program and essentially the engine just cycles between peak power and peak torque for they won't go into the specifics but there's a whole program and there's a bunch of fuel out the back and they they, they lock the door on sort of friday night at five o'clock and they come back on monday morning and just hope that the flywheel hasn't decorated the wall in the meantime right and usually it does not and this is much more severe than any of the driving that you could ever do to a vehicle on a racetrack in terms of engine output, right? Engines, internal combustion engines, what I'm saying is they're designed to deliver their peak outputs reliably for duty cycles much greater than you can impose upon them in the real world. Whereas this system, by definition, cannot deliver in any way that I can see, save for magic, it cannot deliver that 157 kilowatts any other way than briefly in the time domain is kind of where I'm at with that. And I'm happy to be corrected on that, but I don't see based on the data any other way to interpret what we're being told about the product. Now, just moving on, Ivan Smith wouldn't it be better for electric cars to have a swap-in or swap-out battery system? Would it make it more convenient? This is a nice idea. I'd put that down into the, into the category, Ivan, and I'm not trying to be disrespectful towards you, mate. I'd put that down as a nice but uninformed idea because I get where battery swap comes from because battery swap, dude, how simple is this? I've got three of them over there, right? As soon as one croaks, I whip it out on the charger, whip in a fresh one, good to go. I can make swarf and sawdust and whatever, and there's no downtime. I don't have to wait for one battery to recharge. Wouldn't it be terrible if power tools come with an integrated battery and you had to put, you know, USB-C in the back of it or something and wait for two hours until you could go again? That would friggin' suck, and swapping this is really easy. So why can't you do it with electric cars? And I'd suggest, he said, fucking around with the battery instead of answering the question, I'd suggest that in an electric vehicle, the battery, if it's 60 or 70, 80 kilowatt hours, it's going to weigh three to 500 kilograms. And it's going to be an integrated part of the car. It's not a really simple thing to disconnect. It's difficult to move. It's going to be extracted vertically down from the underside of the car, right? It's got a cooling system. It's probably liquid cooled. So to have a battery exchange EV world, there'd have to be standard or modularized batteries. And I can't see manufacturers of vehicles getting together and all shaking hands and going, here's our battery standard. Like that's just not gonna happen. The battery is designed to fit in the platform architecture and it is therefore best spoke to not even brands it's best spoke to different models so the battery in a kona electric is going to be different than the battery in an ionic 5 for example so swapping out is going to be difficult there it's going to be complex because of the cooling the battery also talks to the can bus in the car so it says hey computer getting a bit hot here need the fans to go on and need the pumps to turn on and really don't want to have a catastrophic thermal runaway. Uh, speaking of which, if you go to a battery, ex if, if we overcome all of those hurdles and you go to a battery exchange joint, which is a de facto servo, right, for your EV and you just want to top up, you want a fresh battery, you want to go 
new battery please just slot one in then what if the battery you get is a bit shit and it catastrophically runs away thermally like the problem with lithium-ion batteries is that the electrolytes when they overheat they decompose and part of the process of decomposition because they're all phosphates and other ions with O in them lots of O's incidentally so when the electrolyte decomposes it decomposes exothermically and one of the products is oxygen gas so you've got heat and oxygen gas which is like that's like Apollo 1 dude look look it up Apollo 1 is one of the grimmest if not the grimmest uh, days ever of the Apollo space program. The uh, astronauts were on a ground test in a pure oxygen environment. There was a spark. They all croaked. Okay. Very sad. Very tragic. And this is kind of what happens with a battery that thermally runs away. So it generates its own oxygen. It's exothermic as it does that. So it generates its own heat. Therefore, you can't put the fire out, dude. It can't go out. You just wait for it to stop. I've got these big um, glorified swimming pools on the backs of trucks in Europe so that if a EV starts to do that, they just pick it up with a crane, like a fireproof crane, and they just dunk it. That's the brave new world we're looking at. So what I'm saying is you pick up your brand new EV, you go for a battery swap, you get a shitty old defective EV because they didn't check it or whatever, and all of a sudden it burns down. And where's your warranty on that exactly, right? How do you prove that? You're looking at a bunch of ash three days later. How do you prove what happened? How do you prove whose fault it was? Was it an electrical problem with the car? Was it a dodgy battery? What was it? So I see a billion reasons why we just can't have this seemingly simple answer of, oh, let's just swap out the batteries, right? I just see it being too difficult on a hundred different levels, dude. I do. But I understand why people ask that question, because if you've got a power tool, that's what you're already doing. Mark Giffard now says the Chinese manufacturer Neo has a battery swap system in operation now. You can swap the battery over, including battery sizes. Yeah, but my point remains that we don't have functionality like that across brands, right? We've got a few different brands of EV in Australia. All the batteries are different. It's difficult and lengthy to remove them from those vehicles. In the life of the vehicle, they're really not designed to be removed, although they are serviceable components because they're a big aluminium box with coolant flowing through it, computer system inside it, CAN bus connection, cooling system connection, high voltage connection, etc. Let's go on. Uh, Adam Tipping, love the live stream. John, keep up the good work. Well, thank you, Adam. I appreciate that, mate. It's nice to get a bit of encouragement in the cesspit of YouTube comments, which can be quite confronting, I'm sure, if you weren't a sociopath and didn't care. But I appreciate the kind words, mate. Thank you very much. Uh, Mike Johnson said, g'day, John from Arizona. G'day, Mike. Welcome to Australia. Ranan Unpronounceable says, better place had a working replaceable battery EV failed economically. That's interesting. I, I'd like to drill down into the mechanics of the economic failure of that system because it might be instructive for you know future iterations at the very least. Could just be interesting in its own right. Bob Newhart says, hey Bob, love your work, says they could have a battery standard but that's a whole subject. It will have to be automated or done by machines because of the weight. Yeah, well, you're not going to get 
the kinds of dudes who typically man servos to just whip out a battery and whip it back in. You're going to have to be highly trained. There's going to have to be a process and fail-safes to do that also, I'd suggest, because we're talking about moving something with catastrophic potential. Wouldn't want to drop it and just break it, because that is one of the pathways to catastrophic thermal runaway. Uh, Gary... MGHS Excite says when a LiPo battery blows, they blow big time. Yeah, they do. Um, LiPo batteries typically used in things like remote control cars and uh, FPV drones and things of that nature. Very sensitive when it comes to rates of discharge and over-discharging and things of that nature. Quite spectacular. And in a bushfire zone, pretty horrific potentially as well for the drone thing, I'd say. Lucien Swift says replaceable batteries would only work in countries that have governments powerful enough to dictate conditions to businesses. I'd say yes, that's true, but also you've got to appreciate that the likes of uh, Hyundai, Volkswagen, you know, Toyota, all of the big players in automotive, they're in a sense bigger than governments. They're bigger than many governments, and certainly they operate on a grand global scale. So if one market started to dictate the terms unreasonably to the likes of, I don't know, Hyundai, Toyota, whatever, they just have a little meeting and decide that nah, it's not worth it, you know, and pull out of that market. So there would need to be a consortium of nations that decided that this is how we're going to do stuff. And we don't do it that way. We don't even do it that way at governmental level. What we kind of do, because we've got dumb shits running the show in government, largely... I'd suggest that what we do is we wait for technology to evolve and go, oh, we might need some regulation about that, right? That, like, this is how we do it. It's why intelligent extraterrestrial life just stays at a safe distance and just probes us from time to time for their own enjoyment, dude. Blair Sauer says, I think Nissan has always been the poor Japanese cousin Struggling to compete with Toyota. Toyota is the better hybrid as far as the hybrid race is concerned. How does Nissan correct this stupidity? Well, I think Nissan has a few problems, right? And the fundamental problem, which it shares with Honda, incidentally, is that the global financial crisis was the biggest. It was the thermobaric bomb from hell in the boardroom, right? And it basically damaged both of those corporations big time. And I don't believe they've ever fully recovered. I think they're trying to look the part, but they're no longer walking the walk. And I don't see how you fix that. And also in Australia, I think their product portfolio is poor, whereas Toyota has kicked the biggest goal with hybrid. They've got a pretty mundane hybrid system, but it works very well. It's like hybrid light almost, where all it does is regeneratively break. But people see the virtue in hybrid and 30% of Toyota's sales are hybrid. They're quite reliable vehicles. I don't hear anything negative about the reliability of Toyota hybrids and I haven't heard anything negative about them for donkey's years. Their vehicles are fundamentally internal combustion powered vehicles and their big trick is regenerative braking which is a thermodynamics hack and all it does is it captures a little bit of kinetic energy here and there where the vehicle is either coasting downhill or rolling to a stop like at stopped lights or when the traffic stops and just shoves that into a fairly small battery and uses it again to get going when it makes sense to do so so 
that's not the most aggressive kind of hybridization possible. The, the most aggressive and probably best for most people form of hybridization is a plug-in hybrid, but then you're in a domain where you have to make the commitment to plug in all the time. Otherwise, the bigger battery in the plug-in hybrid is really just excess baggage. So there's that. Let us move on from Blair now and talk to Corian One. You can't even take the battery out of a smartphone. What makes you think they'll let you do it in a car, lol? Yeah, kind of thing. I agree with that. Although you can do it in a camera. It's pretty easy. So the, the thing about batteries is their complexity goes up when you drive them really hard. Like if you charge them really fast and discharge them really fast, which happens in a car, you've got to take extreme care to manage the heat that they generate in both of those conditions. Otherwise, get on the news, dude. Like, nobody wants that. So, uh, Spooky88 says... I can only imagine the feeling of dread the engineers would be feeling when they had their carefully designed baby hand their carefully designed baby over to the marketing department. Well, here's the thing, right? In car companies and other major manufacturing organisations, I've met a ton of engineers and they work in these shitty little sheds out the back sort of thing. Although some of the, the skunk works that they work in is very impressive, you know. And they love it there because that's what they do. The, the biggest negative impact I see on engineers is bean counters. Bean counters pulling the rug of the budget out from under them and forcing them to do inelegant compromises just to meet the budgetary target for this project and that one. And then, of course, the marketing department, like the marketing department is in the fundamental business of bullshit, right? Marketing and PR is talking it up. It's overselling. It's telling you that something is not just excellent, but impossibly so, and also better than every competitor. And they can give you a thousand reasons why. And this, of course, is bullshit, as defined by Harry G. Frankfurt, who is the Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at Princeton University. This book, which you must get, it's available on Amazon, is the quintessential reference guide to bullshit. Such a salient feature of our society. It's not the same thing as lies, but the marketing department can use anything, right? They can certainly manipulate the truth by omitting to tell you the negatives. That's a really good technique, isn't it? They just omit to tell you what's bad. It all seems pretty good. They talk it up. They embellish it to the extent that's possible, they walk up to the line of what the law allows without putting their toes over. Sometimes they do. Ford is very good, for example, in Australia, at uh, just misrepresenting the product over and over and over and then being forced to pay compensation to owners who have been unwittingly bent over here and there because they were told the product was one thing and, in fact, it was less than that. But, yeah, generally I agree with you. Like, you shouldn't only do research by reading the brochure because the brochure is selectively honest at best you know you've got to, it's, it's harder to do proper research than that and they make it difficult marketing and comms people make it very difficult to get to a reasonable version of the bottom line where a rational selection between three or four competing vehicles can be made by you right the brochure is not the place to get that information the specs are pretty accurate but even there they leave what's not there out so there's that. Um, now, let us go on. 34 Media says, maybe the engine would have been better. 
released in a similar city, a smaller city-style car version, not the X-Trail, which you would imagine will spend a lot of time overtaking on a highway-style driving. Well, that engine seems pretty well suited to the task at hand, which is variable load kind of delivery. That's what uh, variable compression ratio is very good at. So I don't see it being a poor choice for this application at all. What I see is the overall application being a poor choice for a vehicle such as this with some sort of green intent. The very concept in my head of internal combustion powered EV, that's a dichotomy that I can't solve. And when you pass it through the filter of engineering type efficiency, it is just a fail. It, like, sorry, it's just a fail. There are better hybrids than that. And I get where they're coming from. I get that you don't have to plug it in. I get you can do all of this stuff with it. But to suggest that this is just a brilliant idea that is super efficient is ridiculous. And the, the differential diagnosis for that exhibit A is a diesel Hyundai Tucson with a conventional automatic transmission, which is the same size vehicle, same kind of mass, same kind of shape, same kind of everything with a 10-year-old powertrain at best, is virtually as fuel efficient as this whiz-bang new thing from Nissan with a name that is just so ridiculous that it fails to fall off the tongue. It's very hard to say that name a hundred times, which is roughly how many times they printed it in the press kit. So there's that. Uh, Mark Burns says, hi, John, love the live chat. Uh, when Will you be test driving the Subaru Outback Turbo when they arrive in Australia? Yeah, maybe, but the thing about test driving, I will get to that in a minute, I'm considering buying one when they're available. I'm convinced it'll be okay, right? I just am. The thing about test driving, okay? Test driving is time-consuming and hard work, and there are so many people doing it. And what they do in Australia is all of these car reviewers, I can't call them motoring journalists because they wouldn't know, many of them, in my view, wouldn't know how to be journalists if it jumped up and bit them on the ass, right? They try to do Top Gear badly, and they, they're successful. They do it badly, okay? And really, there's a lot of reading the spec sheet with pictures of them driving the car. And what value does that serve you? There's a couple of different categories of viewers, I suppose. There's the road test porn viewer, right? Who just, just want, I just want to see a road test, you know? And in that case, that might be fair enough. But if you are actually that dude who wants to buy that particular car and you're sitting through endless reviews, right? One of the big problems is just reading out the spec sheet. Another big problem is being on this merry-go-round of invitation by car companies to attend their bullshit event, right? And when you attend the bullshit event, there is pressure on you, and it's pretty soft pressure, but it exists, only to say nice things, because if you say nice things, you get invited back. And if you say nice things, they say yes every time you ring up and want to book a car, right? The only problem is sometimes you, the actual purchaser of a car, needs to know what's bad about it. And you need that to be delivered in a definite way by someone with balls big enough to say it. And there are not too many motoring journalists like that in this country or, frankly, anywhere else around the world. 
the whole industry tends to be a bit bent over like that. So instead of doing road tests, what I want to focus on is telling you what you need to know, which you will not hear anywhere else. And that gets me on just about every car company's shit list from time to time. And the only way I can cope with that is to be a bit of a sociopath about it and not give a shit. Okay, and I'm very good at that now. I, I used to care. I used to really think, you know, now I just don't care. I put you first. I tell you what I think you need to know. And if a car company doesn't like it, I'd suggest that they're multi-million dollar businesses and therefore big boys and girls who can suck it up and get on with their lives without obsessing too much about what some busted old near-death pastor engineer sitting in his friggin' garage has to say about their car. And you've got to decide whether what I say is credible or not. But hopefully what I do say in the mind of a, an intending buyer on the other side of the glass teat here, hopefully that adds more value than just seeing me wax lyrical driving some vehicle up and down the same piece of road a hundred times rolling a GoPro, you know. That's where I sit on road tests. I'd love to know what you think about that, but I don't plan on doing too many conventional road tests because the market is swamped, they're nearly all shit, and there's more valuable information to convey, in my view. Uh, Ma, uh, now, let us go on again now. Who's there? Deleted user says, Hello, John. Is farm diesel, the red dye added for off-highway use stuff, bad for late model car internals? I really don't know. That's the first time I have ever been asked that question. Is that an Australian thing? Because the only diesel on farms I have ever seen has been the same shit that you buy at the server. Let me know. Please, get back to me in the chat, deleted user. And who deleted you and why? Because what you just added there was incredibly worthwhile, so thank you. Now, who else have we got? Gazza Sinkers. That's a good old Australian one, isn't it? Gazza says... You mentioned in vid that EV scooters, etc. would be a good idea for the cities and keeping an ice for other driving. What are your thoughts on the Aptera? Okay, so the Aptera is almost one of those kooky, fuel-efficient uh, solar race cars that used to go, or probably still do, from Darwin to Adelaide, right? And I'd suggest that the Aptera sounds like a good idea because it is lightweight, and lightweight is what we need to embrace if we really want to get to climate carbon neutrality kind of thing for individual personal transportation, not these two-ton abominations which are being rolled out for rich bastards now by all the manufacturers of EVs. We need to have the EV nasty, the little chitois that weighs a small amount that only goes 100 k's because, hey, most people are only going to drive 30 or 40 on any particular day. If we did that, small battery, lightweight, blah, 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 that's good. Look at a picture of the Aptera and tell me which ADRs you think it might not comply with. And I'm pretty sure the answer is nearly all of them, dude. So I see the Aptera's biggest problem as being one of regulatory compliance. So I don't know if there's going to be a special exemption for vehicles such as that. But when you start talking about exemptions and compliance, we're talking about years and years and years of event horizon. We've got to go to endless meetings and bureaucrats have to talk to this person. It's just dogs and cats living together, dude. It'll never happen, right? So that's kind of a problem. Now, moving on to just a few more. We'll keep going for, I don't know, another few minutes if you like. Rusty Mozzie says, road tests 
have about the same level of usefulness as watching someone tell you the food they're eating is good or bad. Yeah, I agree. It's like you want to... <laughs> In road tests, here's the other thing, right? And I'll get some hate mail about this, but it'll be part of my Christmas card Vision Zero process, is that journalists... Uh, motoring journalists in Australia and presumably other markets, you've got to give them some credit or benefit of the doubt, or you've got to say, it's really not your fault that you're so shit at that, right? Because what they basically did was, all publishers, they took journalists who'd only ever written stories, right? Not even taken their own pictures, but just written stories, and then they shoved them in front of cameras and guess what, dude? Nine out of ten of them were slash are shit at it. And the reason is that they don't have broadcast experience. They haven't been trained how the medium works. They don't understand that you can make it fun. And if you're talented enough, you could even make it funny. And I've got to say that humour is a great device for carrying some story along. You might be talking about something properly shit like the... I don't know, the second law of thermodynamics, and you can just feel, as soon as you say that, I have this mental vision of eyes glazing over, millions of eyes just glaze over. Today, ladies and gentlemen, we'll talk about the second law of thermodynamics, but if you carry it on with a bit of humour and you say some funny shit or some thought-provoking shit about it, just being like in a casino, and we've all got a bet, and the currency's not money, it's available energy, and the only rule is... You have to lose. If you say it like that, people go, oh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, Because you're carrying it forward on a river of humour or satire or levity, whatever you want to call it, right? But the dudes doing the reviews, they're sitting there, they're going, what's Nissan going to think if I say this? And they're self-censoring. They don't understand the medium. They're properly shit at it. They're doing all of that stuff badly because publishers invested in cameras and delivery platforms and they didn't seem to think that there was any value in the talent and I don't think I'm anything special I've just had 20 years worth of working in radio and television which means I understand broadcast and just to lay it out for you what I do on YouTube is I invert the medium that I understand which is news and current affairs so what I do is I kind of behave like somebody who knows how to sit in a radio studio, press the buttons and do proper news and current affairs talkback radio, because I did that for years, or go live on Sunrise or put together a package for Today Tonight or whatever, because I did all of that. But what I do is I invert it by saying what I really think, which is what you never learn when you watch or listen to news and current affairs in the broadcast media right? You've never got any fucking idea what the host or uh, of a show thinks or what the reporter thinks because they're just reading the prompter, towing the line. It's all scripted, right? Even the live bits are all through the prism of, oh, if I say that, what I really think, I'll never get invited back and, you know, things of that nature. So I just kind of invert it and I can see other journos really struggling to put together decent packages because they don't understand the medium. And I don't know how you train them. And I'm certainly not a starter for that. I'd rather be dead than train uh, any of them on this kind of thing. And most of the people doing the shooting, they don't know. They just know how to do exposure and check the sound levels and all of the composition. They're good at all that. But the, as for the content and the delivery using the different medium of video, 
It's just shit. It's emphatically shit. Do I sound like I'm up on my freaking soapbox? I think I probably do, so let us move on. Now, um, Pins Vids says, Hey, John, I'm sure you'd have a good connection with Mitsubishi. Any news on the upcoming new-gen Triton <laughs> Navara with a FEV option? I reckon it'll sell like hotcakes. I still don't know whether the Triton is going to be substantially Navarified or whether the Navara is going to be Tritonified. I don't know that Mitsubishi Australia knows that yet. I haven't had any discussions lately with them on that, but I don't know. I, I know that last time I talked about this a few months back, and maybe well, it might have been more like Christmas, they really didn't know. So there's that to consider. I sincerely hope that they're smart enough at board level, not Mitsubishi, but at you know group level where it's Mitsubishi, Nissan, Mitsubishi, Nissan and Renault, that they're smart enough to retain the Super Select 2 because if they go back to the agricultural Navara type you know, uh, transfer case, that will be a net step backwards. I think they've got to lose the coil sprung rear end out of the upmarket versions because that'll be a fail. It just doesn't tow well enough. But there are some design deficiencies as I see it with Triton. They've got, Triton has rather a long uh, overhang at the rear which makes it a poor vehicle for really heavy towing if you're just going to tow two tons it's fine but if you're going to tow three tons that overhang is a problem it's a factor and the and the curve in the cab that makes it difficult to do a properly integrated sort of tray and it kind of looks a bit dodgy so it wouldn't hurt to navarify some of those aspects of the design but the fundamental engineering of triton in terms of the powertrain in particular it's pretty solid I'd like to see uh, adaptive cruise control on the higher spec models because that's a glaring deficiency. But anyway, we'll just have to sit and uh, see there. But there will be some Navarification. But I hope they manage to retain uh, essential Triton underpinnings in some respects, is what I'm saying there. Deleted, uh, deleted user is back now. He says, I think after enough miles, the associated fine for violating the on highway red diesel law will be I don't know what that means we still haven't got to the bottom of the agricultural only uh, diesel thing there if I missed that in the chat sorry dude but they are coming in thick and fast and I am multitasking here like a like a female and I distinctly remember the first time I tried to do that in a radio studio all I had to do was fire off the news theme and stop talking at the same time and I thought my brain was going to explode dude I really did like <laughs> Anytime you hear anybody talking in talkback radio and they're throwing to the news, that is properly hard to do. It's okay when it becomes muscle memory. First couple of times, it's blood erupting from your ears. It's like you've got to fire off the stab and come out of delay and listen for silence. And it's got to be exactly five seconds too. And the pips are going to come and you've got to have the newsroom queued up and you've got to have the news theme ready to rip and then seven seconds after the pips end, you've got to fade up. The, oh. This is so much easier, except you don't get to break for ads. So there's that. Rumpy, Rumpy Pumpy says, there is too much emphasis on cars trying to solve the green issue. We definitely need a car revolution, but the big manufacturers are just building hype cars, nothing truly game-changing. That is absolutely true. And I think there are some very well-funded interests 
fossil fuel type interests. I'm talking coal and gas, the two biggest fossil fuel interests. Funding the consumer focus on EVs, right? Because every second that you spend worrying about EVs and climate is a second that you don't have to do research that leads you to the inescapable conclusion that coal and natural gas is a much bigger part of the climate problem than any car that you might drive. Emissions from burning coal in Australia, roughly 200 million tonnes of CO2, which is just slightly under half of our total emissions. Emissions from cars, like passenger vehicles, 8%. So if we don't target coal effectively, and by effectively, I mean in a way that doesn't bend consumers over categorically. If we don't do that, there's no point even worrying about cars. There's just not. And if you're an energy company like AGL or something, why not drop a few million dollars on making consumers obsess about EVs? Because it takes their minds off coal and natural gas, which is what they do, right? This is kind of the way sugar or tobacco or asbestos industries might have operated in the past, or perhaps still do, who knows. Just do a few more now, just a couple. Now we've got, uh, who, who have we got here? Nick Boyle. Nick Boyle says, John, I can see that BMW and Toyota are angling towards having hybrid hydrogen battery vehicles. What do you think? I think hybridization works with every kind of powertrain, because really the principal advantage of hybridization is... Uh, regenerative braking. And if we're selling vehicles that do not regenerative brake in 2025 or something, then that really is a fail because regenerative braking is a free kick for energy management. And every kilowatt hour of energy you can pump into a battery from regenerative braking is CO2 that you don't emit by burning some alternative kind of fuel. So without regenerative braking in um, modern vehicles, it's it's kind of a fail out there on the road, and yet so many vehicles that you buy now still do not regeneratively brake, which I find somewhat disappointing. I'll do one more and then call it quits because my voice is <laughs> packing in. Uh, let's try John Stewart. He says, here in the US, dyed diesel fuel has added road taxes, added red dye is road tax, added and non-road tax diesel for marine and off-road use has green dye. Well, thank you very much for that, John. I appreciate you letting me know. I haven't seen dyed diesel in Australia, but then I would not claim to know everything about what they do with diesel. Now, I'd like to just go on, what is it, 10 past? 10 past four in Eastern Shitsville, Daylight Saving Time. So I'd like to thank you sincerely for giving up your time on an otherwise perfectly serviceable Friday afternoon, if indeed, this is what it is in your neck of the woods to join me for this live stream. I do like doing that. I particularly like your feedback getting a run because it makes it more of a two-way street, bit of a dialogue, right? And we will be doing more of this on the channel, so fear not if I did not read out your comments. They'll be available for everybody to see in the post-played version of this live stream. Now, if you are in the eastern part of our neck of the woods, have the rest of the week off, dude. I double dead dingoes donger dare ya. And uh, 
I'll inflict some other videos on you over the weekend, of course, and I'll look forward to seeing you on the next live stream. Don't do anything I would not do this weekend, but God knows that hasn't narrowed the available playing field all that much. Have a good one, son.